This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Apple announced it was buying back around $75 billion of its own shares. A year ago, the tech giant bought back $100 billion of its shares, and it wasn't alone. Tech companies tripled the amount of share buybacks from 2017. This uh, happened thanks to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which lowered the corporate tax rate from 35% down to 21%. In fact, thanks to the law, dozens of profitable Fortune 500 companies like Amazon and IBM paid no taxes last year, according to the Institute of taxation and economic policy. The idea behind the corporate tax cut was that multinational U.S. companies would repatriate hordes of money kept offshore, reinvest in their U.S. businesses, and eventually give benefits to employees and consumers. The stock buybacks improve a corporation's earnings per share and are good for investors and executives. To that point, the third quarter of 2018 saw a record level of stock buybacks on the S&P 500, but this doesn't do much for workers. Joining us to discuss this here in studio, we are joined by Jeremy Siegel, who is a professor of finance here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, also joining us on the phone is uh, Bill Lazonic, who is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. Jeremy, great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Happy to be here, Dan. Thank you, Bill. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Great to have you with us. Um, before we get into the, the stock buyback part, Jeremy, I wanted to get your sense of, of what we've seen in the markets the last couple of days. Uh, we're basically trading flat at the start of trading on Wednesday, but the last couple of days, obviously, you've seen uh, early on on Monday a significant downturn, although it was eaten up uh, towards the end of the trading session, but a significant downturn yesterday. And part of it linked to the, the concerns about trade between China and the uh, U.S. All of it, actually. Yeah. I think 99% of the movements of the last three days has been linked to the trade dispute with China. In fact, we're, we've gotten a little rally here going because of the fact that uh, Trump announced that the delegation from China is coming. They, 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 they're still talking, and that has put a little bit of hope in the situation. But this is definitely the dominant uh, factor that uh, I think is going to affect uh, the stock market for quite a few weeks uh, into the future. Should we see a a deal of some kind then? What happens to Wall Street at that point? Oh, a big pop. I mean, uh, we see if we see a deal, I think we can see stocks popping four or five percent. I mean, they're down a couple percent, two or three on, on this fear. Um, and if there's no deal by Friday and they're put on by Friday, we're going to see further pressure and every single rumor and tweet about hopeful and not hopeful is going to be moving the stock market because uh, in in the short run, this is a this is a really critical factor. Bill, your thoughts? Well, well, I don't follow short term trends in the stock market, uh, you know, and the speculation that's going on here and there. Uh, so the approach I take is to look at the long term. Uh, role of the stock market and the companies that actually issue stock and uh, and how that affects uh, their ability to compete uh, in terms of products they, they produce and uh, in terms of the wages they pay, etc. So, uh, I mean, not that, you know, as a just an ordinary person, I kind of uh, watch what's going on up and down the stock market in any particular time, but it's not uh, something I would say I have any expertise on. Um, it's a my my approach is really more to say how how is companies uh, 
being listed on the stock market affect uh, their competitive capabilities. So what has, Bill, then been the impact on Wall Street the last year or so uh, because of, of this run of buybacks that, that we've been seeing from a variety of companies? Yeah, well, I do think that uh, this has given confidence uh, to those people who can make money from buybacks uh, that the companies are going to do them and they're going to do them uh, even that they're going to borrow money uh, to do them. Now they got extra money from repatriating profits uh, from abroad, but that certainly didn't start uh, this phenomenon. The phenomenon started in 1984, which is about a year after the uh, SEC basically adopted under the radar a rule called 10B18, which we call a license to loot. It basically said in addition to paying dividends, uh, which have not gone down, which have gone up, and which is a way that you uh, reward shareholders for just holding shares, we're going to let you go in the market, do open market repurchases, and uh, basically manipulate your stock price. But we're not going to call it manipulation, and we're going to give you a safe harbor against manipulation, even if it's hundreds of millions, or in the case of Apple, uh, could be as much as $1.5 billion a day. And we won't even monitor for doing that. So uh, this is this is a phenomenon that's been going on for over three decades. Uh, I'm a, I know Jeremy Siegel. I've read his book, Stocks for the Long Run. This is not Stocks for the Long Run. And uh, I actually noted in the various editions of his book as it came out, that he wasn't dealing with the problem of stock buybacks, which I found is curious because in 1997, buybacks as a mode of distribution to shareholders uh, became greater than dividends. And the thing about open market repurchases, uh, the people who are going to make money from them are the people who can time the buying and selling of shares, uh, which is not you or me. It's people who are have either have the information to do so, which is certainly – top executives, and we don't even know the days on which buybacks are done uh, at the time or after the fact. The SEC doesn't know. Uh, or hedge fund managers, uh, investment bank managers who are looking, and, and really that's their business, the time to buying and selling a, a stock. It might be very short term, but it might be holding stocks for a company, even as Carl Icahn did for you know uh, three and a half years. And uh, then pull out $2 billion uh, from, from the investment without ever a actually giving Apple anything, in, in, in the case of Apple mm -hmm. a few years ago. You find lots and lots of examples of this. So uh, that's the problem. And on the one side, the other side is the companies that are doing it uh, typically have lots of money, at least at the time they're doing it. So it's not necessarily that the buybacks are impeding them from making other types of investments. But it leads to behavior that actually undermines uh, their competitive capabilities. Mm -hmm. to, do, to see that, you have to dig into particular companies, particular industries, to see how that works. And I you know, could go on and on with lots of examples. Sure. Stop there for now. Jeremy? Well, I, I disagree. I mean, I don't know what you mean, license to loot. I mean, the, uh, it, I think buybacks... Uh, proliferated for two reasons. Uh, one is our tax code, uh, which uh, is uh, more lenient on capital gains than on dividends. And therefore, if you return profits as capital gains rather than dividends, um, the ultimate investor gets a lower tax. Uh, another 
reason for that for the increase in buybacks is uh, uh, the option incentives that are given both to employees and uh, to management. Um, these options are based on the price of the shares. Uh, and uh, therefore, if you give, uh, if you return profits to shareholders by means of uh, raising their price instead of dividends, mm -hmm. this benefits uh, those that are granted uh, options on that. By the way, uh, both those causes of the uh, preference for buybacks could be very easily uh, neutralized by uh, some uh, simple changes in the tax code um, that, uh, uh, unfortunately, were not made, I think, in the latest tax revisions that were done last year in the personal one. It's a big, uh, a big hole in what they could have done to prevent those buybacks. But right now, I think the tax code and the option incentive is by far uh, the, the major reason um, for uh, the increase in buybacks. So what would would have been some well, of the things that, that maybe you think should have been addressed during well, one, this last one thing change in they, the code? they could have done to put the tax uh, of dividends on the same footing as capital gains is that anyone who reinvests their dividends, in other words, uh, uh, joins a stock reinvestment plan, which is very easy to do. You just yep. indicate that with your broker, yep. uh, would not pay tax on his or her dividends if it's reinvested until they finally sold the stock. Now, right. that's exactly what happens with capital gains. As you get capital gains, you're not taxed until you sell the stock. That would put the the dividend on the same tax status as the capital gain. As far as options are concerned, uh, they, uh, they could be a ruling that the options should be dividends plus capital gain, not just on the price of the stock, but you'd add back any dividends. So that would mean that a, a company that gave a dividend mm -hmm. rather than buy back their stock, they would still get that uh, preference on their option. So it's called, it's called um, uh, 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 price come uh, dividend options that, you know, where you add back the dividend. And there are some options out there. They're not as popular. Right. But if they mandated those options uh, for the management and whatever, then then the management would say, well, then I could give a give dividend without being disadvantaged on my option. Bill? Yeah, well, I, I disagree. First of all, qualified dividends get the equivalent capital gains rate, uh, depending on your tax bracket. And most uh, corporate dividends are qualified. Uh Secondly, uh, the executive pay, uh, the, the gains that the executive would make when you get a price boost from buybacks uh, and uh, their uh, stock option, um, uh, their, their, the stock price goes up, they exercise the option, sell the stock, or their uh, awards vest often with uh, uh, metrics that are based on uh, related to stock price. Uh, they don't pay capital gains tax. They pay ordinary taxes. And in fact, uh, the problem of capital gains taxes on stock options was something that Congress got rid of in 1976. It prevails between 1950 and 1976. And that was a tax dodge when you had very high marginal tax rates on ordinary income, uh, as high as 91 percent and 25 percent uh, capital gains tax rate, at least in the 50s and 60s. And so that's an old phenomenon that uh, 
was actually people recognized the time it was a scam, and they got rid of it uh, in 1976. The, the since when options came back after 1981, and it was really because of the rise of Silicon Valley and uh, giving up broad-based stock options to employees. I'll get to that issue in a minute. Uh, the uh, uh, the um, gains are all taxed at the ordinary tax rate. In fact, it's in the uh, uh, Economic Recovery Act of 1981 that uh, in any one year, uh, the most you can take as capital gains rate on options um, is a hundred thousand dollars of exercisable options. So as the stock price doubles, you might make uh, a hundred thousand extra, which is fine for me, but uh, that's fiddling uh, for, for executives. Uh, and in fact, the problem then is if you have qualified stock options where you have to, uh, uh, where you can get a capital gains tax rate and it is limited, uh, you have to hold the stock uh, for a year. Uh, executives now can sell the stock uh, is, is the second they buy it. In fact, they get taxed on it uh, the second they exercise uh, the stock option. And uh, they, there's a risk to them if they hold the stock. They could hold the stock. It's up to them. But they're already paid taxes at that time at the ordinary rate on, on the on the stock that's exercised. Now, up until 1991, uh, as part of the uh, the code that went back to uh, uh, the Security Exchange Act, uh, insiders and it still exists. Insiders uh, have to wait six months after a certain date uh, before they can sell the stock, or they have to give the gains to the company. Right until 1991. That date was the exercise date of the option. And so you, executives then had to wait six months before they can sell the stock. They lobbied against that, and the SEC uh, changed the, uh, the the date at which that six months started to the grant date. And since all stock options uh, have at least a year till they vest, they can sell them right away. So that's, that's absolutely wrong. In terms of stock options, they are a very, very bad way of paying people because they get huge amounts of money even when the companies go downhill. And I just have an article coming out on Boeing and uh, the $95 million that uh, this guy Muhlenberg has pulled in in his take-home pay since 2015, 2015, 2018. Well, they did $43 billion in stock buybacks. Uh, it would have been about uh, – they could have built four, four whole new planes, better than 737 for that at least. And uh, – they're getting all these gains, even when they're doing things that, that, that result in failure. We, we have all this evidence on, on the uh, pharmaceutical companies that are charging us high prices, saying they need higher prices to invest more in uh, drug innovation. And Merck and Pfizer, which have been for a couple decades now, paying 150% of their profits out uh, as dividends and buybacks and increasingly buybacks, they don't need those high prices that we're paying. So I'm paying as a ta- uh, uh, high prices uh, uh, to, to, to for drugs uh, or through, through for the for the insurance premium, and these guys are are, are putting stuffing all that money in their own bank accounts. And meanwhile, we're paying as taxpayers 30 to 40 billion dollars a year in NIH funding that benefits them, and they have a whole business, as all these companies do, of avoiding taxes. So, it, you know, you can, you can put a little spin on this by not looking at what's going on in the companies, but if you look at what's going on in the companies, you see that the whole thing is rotten, and it is a license to loot. Jeremy? 
Well, first of all, Bill, I'm sorry you're completely wrong on the qualified dividend question. Yes, uh, the tax rate is the same, but it's the deferral option on the capital gain that I referred to. Uh, So uh, a capital gain does have the same rate, but the deferral of the capital gain tax uh, versus uh, the uh, immediacy of the tax on the dividend. So, I mean, that's just... Well, that's a tweak. Well, I'm just saying that's a major factor for a lot of people. I I have to see that that's a major factor, but it's it's very different. The factor for me and everyone else I talk to that invests. So let me ask you this then, Bill. In terms of what we are seeing right now with Wall Street and the the increase in stock buybacks, what is the impact on, on, do you think, on Wall Street as a whole? Well, I don't care about Wall Street. I care about workers. Okay. <laughs> and I care about people who then go and vote for Donald Trump because they've been ignored for three decades and they, they don't have jobs. The way in which we we create employment opportunities, I don't mean just you know hiring someone for a day or a week. I mean for 10, 20, 30 years. And whether it's the same company or different companies, it's companies reinvesting their profits. That's the foundation of corporate finance. And that's what hasn't been going on. And part of that reinvestment is not just plant and equipment, because any company can buy plant and equipment. It's training, retaining, and rewarding employees. And so if you're going to get an upward movement in wages, it's because companies are more productive, and they reward the value creators. And by the way, the value creators are mainly the workers. People like you or me who just buy shares in a company, we're not investing. I mean, that's, a, that's a myth. And all we're doing is buying and selling shares. Uh, it's the, the workers who produce the value Put the money back into the company, get higher wages. That gives us uh, historically gave us a middle class, and that's what that's what's missing. So there's much deeper problems here than Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street is the problem, but I'm not worried about Wall Street. You know, as they used to call it, I'm worried about Main Street. But I'm worried about what's going on in the companies where uh, you know, 100 million people are working and trying to make a living every day. Jeremy, let let me comment on. I mean, there's a question. You know, I never believed the idea that uh, that this money that was going to be repatriated was going to go into investment. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ever. Um, uh, I I felt exactly what would happen happen. I mean, if, you know, if you know, back in the 19th century, or you know, really before the 1980s, firms used to pay out you know two thirds, seventy percent more, eighty percent of their Profits as dividends. Then, when the stock buyback came in, they just cut their dividend uh, and substituted buyback. So, you know, right now, you, hold on, Bill. Bill, I'll give you a chance in one second. You know, Go ahead, so, so, you know, really, so you want to get a two percent dividend yield? Well, before then, you get a four percent dividend yield. Now they buy back two percent. Uh, you know, you know, the truth is, uh, firms. Firms didn't really need to invest more. They were producing everything, you know, that they needed to. There were no supply shortages. Or suddenly, they needed to invest. Uh, so, you know, you know, the, the, there's, you know, they're going to get greater corporate profits as a result. I mean, the main thing I think was to lower that tax rate to the same level as the rest of the world right. um, and to prevent the inversions that were taking Correct. place. That, yeah. to me, was uh, a big gain. Then there were other big ga- you know, big gains in terms of the corporate tax, in terms of how you, you do it. We can talk about 
you know, expensing versus the other. But, you know, basically we had, you know, the very, very high tax rate. And now, you know, statutorily, uh, it's down to about the average. So, Bill, I'll let you respond to that. And then also, since your focus, as you just alluded to, not really on Wall Street, then what do you think that, that how this has factored into the U.S. economy? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, first of all, uh, it's not true that uh, companies traded off uh, dividends for buybacks. So all the data we have shows that uh, dividends have increased um, even as a proportion of, of profits and buybacks have been on top of them. And we have data. We, we look at the same companies going back to before 1982 and uh, buybacks were minimal. And we can show that even for the same set of S&P 500 companies. We go back in case I, that data is all available online and it's, it's in, in various kinds of articles and it's well documented. Uh, the, uh, the other thing, to no, the, the notion that, that companies had nothing else to do with their money, that is the problem. We know that real wages of most workers have stagnated for, for about three decades. We know that job uh, stability has, has been undermined, that, uh, that there's actually downward mobility of uh, whole groups of the population. And uh, that's because corporations stop reinvesting in their companies. And reinvesting is not simply investing in plant and equipment. It's investing in people. And people through time are the ones who get experience. Even people who have what we might think is pretty ordinary jobs. Their experience is very important to productivity because it's all a part of a, uh, an organizational process, and that's what you need to, to study, and that's where the impact is. Uh, the impact is on what workers get paid, the experience they get, the productivity we have, and to say that with the U.S. losing competitive advantage in so many industries, and now we have China on the horizon, and, and, uh, but for this goes back, of course, to the, the rise of Japan. And while Japan is in center stage, it's still it's much more productive in a whole lot of areas in the United States. It's to say that this had no effect, that there wasn't anything investment, is just to ignore what's happened in American industrial history over the last uh, three, three, four decades. Um, and we see it in income inequality. We see it in concentration of income at the top. We see it in uh, uh, stagnating wages, downward mobility. And so give me explanations of that that can give that explanation without buybacks. I well, there's a very easy explanation of that. I mean, there's a, I mean a very, you know, the workers aren't productive mainly because our educational system totally failed. You're, you say the only way we should educate people is through the, the corporations paying for their, no, for their training. Okay. And you, you know there's I, I, been a total collapse in educational yeah, standards over the last 30 years. Okay. Uh, yes. Bill, I Bill go ahead. But, How about our school system? Bill, go ahead. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The school system has failed. But we, we had very high tax rates, progressive tax rates uh, uh, in the era before the 1920s, before this change, this regime change in, in companies. Uh, and we educated the labor force. We had free higher education. Uh, we stopped investing in this because the elite decided that they didn't need the educated labor force. And, uh, you know, I could go on for hours about that because we're just coming up with a book on on, on this whole process and what's happened to African-American employment over the last 50 years. You could write the same thing, Hispanic employment. We got very, very fortunate in the United States in the high-tech field. 
that Asia was 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 investing in the education and labor force, and we had selective uh, immigration policies to our benefit and to the great benefit of the people who have been able to make use of them that have given us uh, an Asian-American labor force that is highly productive. And it, in many ways, unfortunately, it's not the fault of the Asian-Americans because they were taking advantage of the opportunities that I think anybody will want to take advantage of. But we have competitiveness in certain high-tech fields because we have an educated labor force, and in the origins, at least, we did not educate. And at that point, our American uh, elite said, well, we don't need to worry about educating the labor force, upgrading uh, the education of the labor force. And I can tell you from the book we're just finishing on what's happened to African-American employment, uh, what's happened, what you see now, people like Angus Deaton have documented in terms of the downward mobility or Raj Chetty and others, downward mobility of workers with a high school education because their education was not upgraded. That happens to black first, and then it happens to white because the whites didn't take care of the blacks. Okay, so these are big socioeconomic problems, but the corporation is absolutely at the center of it. The corporation is just, just some disembodied entity. Uh, these large corporations, about 1,900 corporations, account for uh, about 34% of business sector employment, 38% of payrolls, 44% of revenues. Uh, what those companies do or do not do affects the whole way in which the economy works. And so if we don't understand how those corporations are making money and what they're doing with that money, we don't understand taxation, we don't understand investment in education, we don't understand a whole bunch of things. And what we start understanding when we understand that is how we get the kind of politics that we have now where <laughs> working class people are voting for the worst possible person you could ever imagine uh, running their country and causing tremendous havoc. So we've got major problems here. You can't paper them over by saying, well, stock options are good or bad. These are central to the way these companies operate. Jeremy, final thoughts? It's not the responsibility of corporations to teach students how to read, write, add, and subtract. It is period. No, it isn't. Taxes. No, it isn't. Is That's the base. The base. The base. Yes, there is a terrible yes, failure of our educational system. No, it is. I'm afraid. I'm afraid you're wrong. Those yeah. people sit on on all these committees and is responsible uh, who run companies uh, that determine allocation of resources. Uh, and it is their responsibility to pay fair taxes. And they have whole divisions set up to avoid taxes. And we let them do it. Okay. So. Okay, they're doing what we let them do, but we have to change what corporations are, are permitted to do. Have to end it there. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Bill, for joining us today. Jeremy, great to see you again. Yes. Thank you both. Bill Lazonic from uh, the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. Jeremy uh, Siegel from right here at the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 